0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 31st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. It's Family Sunday, and we're glad to worship the Lord together in here as a church family. So this morning, we are going to continue on in what we have been doing for the last number of weeks as we've been studying the book of Esther. The last couple of months, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of Esther, and we're nearing an end to that tremendous story. And, and this morning, rather than moving forward to the next part of the story, we are going to take some time to, to step back, and we're going to catch everybody up, especially the kids in the room who haven't been with us, and then we're going to try to see how the story of Esther helps us to discover more about who God is, what he's like, and, and what hope that is for you and I. And so to catch everyone up, rather than me going up here and going, well, last time on Esther and telling you the whole story, instead of me doing it, we're going to let the Bible Project do it. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Bible Project. They've got a wonderful video on Esther. So if technology is friendly to us this morning... We're going to let this video tell us the story of Esther up to where we are. So let's see. You can go and, and watch the rest of the video at home at The Bible Project. They've got amazing videos on almost all the books of the Bible, but then other things with theology and the history of the church. And so go enjoy that. It's a wonderful resource. But we're going to stop there because in the next couple of weeks, we're going to finish the story through God's word together. But just like the video highlighted in the beginning, In the entire book of Esther, God is never directly mentioned. But what we've been learning going through the story is that though he's not directly mentioned, he's never absent. We've said that God is guiding everything, from the largest details to the smallest ones, even like Haman's toss of the dice. He is working all of these things together and forward towards the end that he has purposed. And so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this, and we saw that this is what's called the providence of God. And understanding that God is weaving together and steering forward for his glory and our good, every single aspect of life is foundational to understand everything that's taught in the Bible. And so the book of Esther has been asking us every single week as we've been reading it, can we see God without him being directly mentioned? And so throughout the story, we've been exposing the providence of God, God's work flowing underneath all the details of the story, coincidences and reversals. And, and mom and dad, if you've been in here throughout the series, go home in the story and walk through all those coincidences and reversals with your kids. It's an amazing story. But the book of Esther, it also allows us, as we see God's work underneath these details, it it helps us to see some of God's characteristics. Some things about God that we don't often talk about and other things about God that are very clear that we have to be very certain about. And so this morning, I just want to point out two of those. One that we don't talk a lot about or at least consider often and another that's very clear that we need to be most confident in. So the first thing that we learn about God through the story of Esther, or at least the story of Esther, helps us to see it in a different way, is that God is anything but boring. I don't know how you feel about God sometimes, how you feel about his word, how you feel about his work in life and in history, but one thing we're reminded of just in reading the story of Esther is that God is anything but boring. In fact, God's providence or the way he works in life at times can be quite funny. You didn't laugh at the videos simply because it was drawings up there with funny satans. You laugh because parts of the story are funny. In fact, in in chapters five and six, those key pivot moments in the story of Esther, you find some of the deepest humor that is still audibly laughed at every single time God's people get together and read the book of Esther at a feast we're gonna learn about in a couple of weeks. see, in chapters five and and chapter six, you, you get that crazy reversal where we see in the clearest moments Haman's desire to be exalted, his pride and his desire for glory. And we see Haman, remember, going into Xerxes' room, ready to declare that he's built the stake for Mordecai to be, be, to be killed upon. He's ready to be exalted by the king. And at the same time, he doesn't know, but the king is remembering that he hasn't honored Mordecai for his loyalty. And he's thinking, how do I honor this man for his loyalty? And it's at just that time they come in. And Haman doesn't know what Xerxes has been thinking. Xerxes doesn't know what Haman has been thinking one wants to honor Mordecai, the other wants to hang Mordecai. And right there in chapter 6, five times in six verses, you find the phrase, the man whom the king delights to honor. What should be done for such a man? Remember, Haman naturally assumes that Xerxes is thinking about him, so he has this elaborate way that he thinks he should be honored, ridden around town on the king's horses, wearing the king's robes with someone in front of him who's important in the, in the orchestration of Xerxes', Xerxes uh, cabinet, declaring to everybody, this is the man the king honors. And in the end, Xerxes says, yes, exactly, go do that for Mordecai, your enemy, The one who would want to have Mordecai destroyed becomes the one who exalts God's people. Now, for centuries, historians would say that every year when God's people would hear the book of Esther read out loud, it would be an interactive activity. There were moments in the story when different sounds would be made, when people would respond to what's happening. Like when Haman gets exalted over Mordecai, there would be noises made like being boo, like boo, not him. This is a spot in the story every time for history when it was read, that God's people would laugh out loud. The humor of God's providence, exalting his man Mordecai at the expense of the evil Haman. It's funny the way God works some of these things out. But it's not just God's humor that makes God not boring. God's providential work, the, the way that he weaves these things together, It helps us see that that God has a flair, in a good sense, a flair for the dramatic. When we tend to say that phrase, we think about it negatively, but but God is a master artist. His artistry and his drama is on display in the way that he weaves this story together and even in the way that he inspires that this story is written. He's anything but boring. I mean, this entire story is is built on, on separate instances of great tension and great suspense and perfect impeccable timing all the way through the story the precision of god's timing that he uses to bring about the deliverance of his people is astounding i mean if you might remember in those important chapters five and six at the end of chapter five there haman has been talking about all that he has all of his glory all that he has in his possession his wife tells him in chapter 5, verse 14, go to the king in the morning and tell him to have Mordecai hung on a stake that we've built in the backyard. And in the very next verse, the writer says, on that night, the king couldn't sleep. And he happens to have, as you saw in the video, you might remember, the book of his chronicles read out loud to him. And it just happens to be the space in the book of the Chronicles that's being read out loud to him where he's reminded of what Mordecai did for him in the past, some four years earlier that he had forgotten all about. And in walks Haman. Very often, God's providential work, it hangs on this kind of timing. And in the moment, you can't see it. Xerxes didn't know what Haman was thinking and what he was coming in for. Haman didn't know what Xerxes was learning in that very moment and what he was expecting. You can only begin to see those things sometimes as you look back on life and back on history. And God's artistry, anything but boring. His flair in his artistry, even for the dramatic. If you pull back a little bit further and even look at how the entire book of Esther was written, it's astounding. The story of Esther, it's not just made up of all these reversals and all these circumstances and all these moments of timing. The entire book is written as one giant reversal in perfect timing. Some of you may have heard of like a literary structure. You might remember it from school. Some of you might be learning it now. A literary structure called a chiasm, when different thoughts are paired together patterns form in in poetry and in narrative. You might see it demonstrated like an arrow. There's an A, a B, a C, a D, then a C, then a B, then an A. One reverses the other. One exposes the other. And what's in the middle is the main point. The entire book is written like this. Scenes completely reversing the other from beginning to the end, all building up to a dramatic moment in chapter 6 when the king can't sleep. Right, it starts with the king's glory and his feasts. It ends with Mordecai's glory and his feasts. Esther and Mordecai save the king, and in the end, God uses them to save the Israelites. Haman's elevated, he writes his edict. Mordecai gets elevated and writes his counter edict. Chapters five and seven bookend this turning point when Esther and Mordecai are planning in both chapters how they're going to do what they're going to do. And they hold these banquets. In chapter 6, you get that great moment, that great pivot point the video said, that great moment of, of tremendous reversal and tension when because the king couldn't sleep, Haman ends up humiliated and Mordecai ends up exalted. As God's people would read this story through the centuries, The artistry of the story, the way that God inspired it for for it to be written, the way that it's not just a list of facts and events that happened, but it's the story of the way God operates in the life of his people. God's people will be reminded for centuries that justice is unfolding here, that life isn't just a, a collection of random, unconnected events that just happen. There's meaningful purpose to everything. And the order of the way the story was written in God's providence, the way he inspired it, would remind God's people for centuries that God works to reverse, even for the good of his people, the expectations and intentions of those who, have, who want harm for them. Prince God is anything but boring. He's anything but Ordinary. And, and I don't even know if you, if you caught it was we were going through the story together for those of you that have been with us. But the very power of God that spoke and, and all things came into being, the very power of God that raised his son Jesus from the dead, the very power of God's divine hand that, that Moses said wrote the Ten Commandments and tablets of stone in Deuteronomy chapter 9, it's that same powerful divine finger that subtly holds open the eyelids of King Xerxes. God might have a flair for the artistic, dramatic in his story and the way he works, but oftentimes the drama is very subtle. God doesn't need flashy ads and billboards for all of his work in this world in order to not be boring and in order for us to know that he still is working according to his promises. It's one thing we're reminded about God in this story. Sometimes his work is as subtle as keeping the king's eyelids open. It's as subtle as a spider web. Charles Spurgeon, some of you might be familiar with Spurgeon, he told a story to his congregation fairly often about an old country preacher who was being harassed and tormented for preaching Christ in the town. And he talked about this old preacher saying there was one day when these men came to attack this preacher and when they came to attack him, he ran away. He fled. He didn't want to get beat up. And this old preacher ran into the town and hid in the storeroom of one of the little stores in the town. And while he was laying down on the ground in that storeroom, hoping to not be found, he lost track of time because he got completely distracted by this spider that was in the door frame. He's laying on the ground, looking out, looking for the people to come, and he gets distracted by this spider that was there. And he watches this spider begin to weave the most intricate web right there in front of his face. And he completely loses track of time until those men come into the store. He can see their feet, he can hear their voices. They're talking about where he is. Go look over here, see if he's here. Is this man here? And he hears one of the men tell one of the other men, go back into the storeroom, see if he's hiding there. And he sees the feet get closer and closer to the door and he hears that man turn around and yell to the other one, let's not waste our time anymore. If he was here, this spider web would be destroyed. He's not here. Let's go somewhere else. God's anything but boring. His providential work controls the toss of Haman's dice, the eyelids of a king, and the webs of a spider. Sometimes it's when we look back, we're able to see God's providence at work, and we're reminded at least of this. We certainly don't serve a boring God. In Esther, his artistry, his mastery is on full display. And we're reminded that just because we can't see him at work sometimes, it doesn't mean that he's absent. But it's not just that. There's there's something else. Yes, God is certainly not boring. But second, God intends for the story of Esther to always be a reminder to his people that he is always good. That his providence is His steering and weaving the circumstances in life is always for His glory and our greatest good because He is good. And one way that we're able to see the the goodness of God on display in the story of Esther, even though He's not directly mentioned, is by understanding and seeing the story of Esther in light of the rest of the Bible. There is an Old Testament commentary on the story of Esther and there's a New Testament commentary on the story of Esther. And there's a spot in the Old Testament when God's people would hear the book of Esther read or when they would study it that God intended for them to hear echoes of in Esther. And it would remind them of something about him. And there's a spot in the New Testament where when we hear the story of Esther, we're to be reminded of something else that God has said to his people now through the Apostle Paul about who he is. They bring out this aspect of God in Esther. And here's the thing, you're going to think we planned this, but I didn't plan it at all. It is, again, God's providence at work, even in the smallest details of life here. You've read both of these things this week in CBR. If you've been reading CBR with us, community Bible reading, we're reading the same passages in the Old Testament and New Testament together, you read the New Testament commentary on Esther on Monday. And you read the Old Testament commentary on Esther a couple of weeks ago in Genesis chapters 49 and 50. See, the way that God did purpose for the the story of Esther to be written, he purposed it and inspired it to be written in such a way that his people would hear echoes of the story of Joseph every single time they came to it. And who God revealed himself to be in that story then. Listen to this. This is one person's kind of summary of these two pieces, If you think about the story of Joseph, he said, Esther bears a striking similarity to all of the events. Both are set in the court of a foreign ruler in which they maintain some level of secrecy about their own identities. Both main characters rise to prominence inside the court but then suffer a misfortune that's resolved and the resulting rise leads to the deliverance of their people. In both stories, the turning point comes through the king's disturbed sleep and he remembers an Israelite. In both, there is a reward of bestowal of power upon them. Remember, Mordecai gets exalted. In both, there's a royal banquet which the invited guests, Joseph's brothers on one hand and Haman and Xerxes on the other, don't know the true identity of the host or the hostess. Both serve as a crucial turning point in the salvation of God's people. Both stories include two eunuchs who act against the king, both stories contain actions that were misunderstood as assaults both stories involve punishment by well gallows what you would interpret there both involve a vast series of seeming coincidences that on the surface look like chance happenings yet they were all necessary for the deliverance of god's people god in his kindness and in his artistry and in his goodness inspired the story of esther to be written in such a way that echoes of Joseph would be heard in the story by his people for centuries because in Joseph's story, God's role was explicitly revealed. You might remember at the end of the story, Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, God intended for his people to read Esther and to hear the echoes of Joseph in the story and what was explicit about him then to be understood as implicit about him even when he's not directly seen. He's still the same God, good and faithful to his promises and his people, even in stories like Esther and even Joseph when his people are faithless towards him at times. Why? because he's good. And just because you can't see him as clearly, it doesn't mean he's absent and not working. But you and I, we, we live on the other side of the Esther story. So when God's people would, would hear Esther read, they would hear echoes of Joseph for centuries. But you and I live on the other side of the cross. We know that God's providential working together of things for glory, for the good of his people, comes to a climax in the life and death and, and resurrection of Jesus. But this week, you read the New Testament commentary on Esther in Romans chapter 8 on Monday. See, in Romans chapter 8, this provides the explicit work of God back in stories like Esther when God wasn't so clearly seen. See, in Romans chapter 8, towards the end, you you might remember this. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is the New Testament explanation of Esther Even if God is not clearly seen, he's good. His hiddenness doesn't mean he's absent. In fact, Paul says, on this side of the cross, you and I as God's people have something we can know with certainty. We can know in in the midst of all the confusion of life, all the perplexity of life, all the things that seem so random and unconnected in life, there's something that God wants us to know. And it's that... For those who love him, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Not just some things, not just most things, not just nice things or good things. All things. I love how one pastor said it. He said, ever since Adam fell into sin, God has been taking our sorrows and even our failures and bending them around to serve his loving intentions. All things, including tragedy, including evil intention, including our own sin. Paul says for those who love God, you cannot sin your way out of God's saving purpose for you. You can sin your way out of having a clean conscience. You can sin your way out of having a deep assurance of him. You can sin your way out of a job in the church. You can sin your way out of a relationship. You can sin your way out of a number of things, but you cannot sin your way out of God's loving purpose for your life. All things in Romans chapter 8 must include even our sin, because that's the very thing salvation intentionally redeems. If it doesn't include that, it loses its force. See, because all things in the goodness of God means all things, you and I never have to wonder in a moment of foolishness, in a moment of disobedience, in a moment of suffering, in a moment of confusion, in a moment of tragedy, is this the moment that God's finally abandoning me? Is this it? No, for those who love God, all things, Haman's intentions, Haman's edict the roll of the dice all things god works together romans 8 does not mean that god condones our sin it simply means as i love it my 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 hero ray ortland says nothing can outmaneuver the mercy of god for us if god intends mercy for us he said the most wonderful thing in this world is not the good that we accomplish but the fact that good can come out of the evil that we do Friends, all things, Paul said, work. Right now, in 10,000 unseen ways, as you take in your next breath and sit here and listen to me talk, God is moving his loving purposes forward in your life in ways you can't even imagine. All things, all things, God is working, even the things Even the intentions, even the actions of people towards us meant for harm. All things include the intentions of Joseph's brothers. All things include the intentions of Haman. God works like this in all things. And he works all things together. This is one of the most astounding things to get your head around. Because if you're really honest with yourself... Life seems like a whole collection of really unconnected random events. There's no rhyme and reason to so many of the things that we go through. There seems to be no pattern to it at all. And from our vantage point, that seems to make sense. Yet what we know on this side of the cross is God has continued to reveal himself to us in this commentary even on how he works in what looks like the most random connection of circumstances in the story of Esther. We know that God is working all these things together. All of them together for his purpose. If your heart can begin to grasp that about God's goodness... Just listen practically. If your heart can begin to grasp that all of these things, all things, God is not just working in and through, but he's working together towards his purpose, do you realize what a comforting ointment that is to all the regrets you deal with in your mind and heart on a daily basis? I don't know about you. I deal with regret. And I know you're not supposed to talk about regret, like it's not supposed to have a theological reality, but it's true. There are things I wish I had done differently. But do you realize that the goodness of God means that he is working together even those things for good? It means you did not, with that decision that you wish no one would ever bring up again, you did not sin your way or foolishly decide your way out of God's primary purpose and plan. God has one plan A for his people. God has one purpose for his people. You can't flunk your way out of it. You can't work your way to plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E, plan Y, and think oh, I got two more shots and then I'm done. That's not how it works. God takes all things, works all things together. I've been telling you about a lady named Karen Jobs, who, who has written what most people consider to be the best commentary on the book of Esther out there. One Old Testament scholar named Walt Kaiser, who's like a, a hero in the Old Testament world, he said he'll never write a book or teach a lesson on the book of Esther because Karen Jobes already did it in her commentary. Nothing else for me to say. It's that good. Well, in that commentary, she talks about coming to this understanding of God's goodness through the story of Esther, even in her own life. You see, she's written the best Old Testament commentary on Esther that's out there. She is an endowed chair professor at Wheaton College. She started out as a computer scientist. She was on a track to a career in computer science. And she got saved. And in the commentary, this is how she talks about how she ended up doing what she's doing. She said, I was so obsessed with the idea of finding God's perfect plan. I was looking for signs everywhere, I was trying to make the right decision. I was afraid of missing his perfect will for my life. Today, I'm a professor of New Testament, I've written an Old Testament commentary. I'm an endowed chair at a major school. How did I get here? Well, I'll tell you how I got here. There were about a hundred little ordinary incidents. If that wouldn't have happened, this wouldn't have happened. If this hadn't happened, this wouldn't have happened. At the moment, everything looked perfectly ordinary because it was ordinary. There's no way that I could tell they were significant. But looking back, they were incredibly significant. If this person hadn't called, if that hadn't have happened, if this hadn't have happened, I would have never become the professor of New Testament I am at Wheaton. And so she says, with Esther, she was trying to say, when God works in extraordinary ways, we can know. But when he's working in ordinary ways, we think he's not there. But he is. He always is. Because he's good. All things work together for good because God is good. God is not saying that all things in themselves are good. Being mistreated at school, being mistreated at work, the suffering of sickness, the injustice that people experience around the world in 10,000 different ways, those things are not good. But... God's goodness and providence mean that we can know that he is weaving together all things for good. And what is the good that he is weaving all things together for that our heart is meant to embrace, be encouraged by, be buoyed up in in times of confusion and pain and suffering? What is that good? Well, Paul says it in the next verse. That those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is what God is up to. God is not weaving all things together for the good of our temporary happiness. God is weaving together all things for the good of our eternal holiness. That we would be conformed into the image and likeness of his son. This is what God values for us. The question that we have to think about as we see his activity, even under the surface in Esther, understanding it through the commentary of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we have to ask ourselves, is this what we value? If this is what God values for us, if this is the good to which God is working all things together for, that we would be conformed to the image and likeness of his son, is that what we value for ourselves? Is that what we value for our families, our kids, our loved ones? Is that what we value for each other? Is that what we value for the church? Does your heart embrace as good what God's heart embraces as good? Friends, God intends for our good to conform us into the image and likeness of His Son. Let us set our hearts on the delight of being made like Jesus not on all the temporary things we chase in the world today. As one wise writer said, if if we're able to embrace as good the very thing that God intends for our good, if we're able to embrace that, happiness, as God defines it, he said, becomes inevitable. All things work together for good for those who love God. Friends, this is different than just reading and believing the Bible. It's different than just going to church some on Sundays. This is the embracing of God and his purposes. When pastor said correct opinions and church membership and faithful service all have their place, but do you love God? Do you understand how important it is to God that you love him? Do you understand how important it is for you? That you love him. Friends, we know. Paul reminds us, God declares to us through what Paul has written to the church that we only truly love God because he first loved us. We loved God because he's called us, Paul said, according to his purpose. We love God and are what we are, and being made what we will become by the grace of God alone. Friends, as we think about the story of Esther and the character of God and the goodness of God, even though it's not explicitly seen, but we see it, we see it rise to the surface as we understand it, even through the rest of the Bible, we're left asking ourselves, are we enjoying the transforming power of the gospel, the reality of God's goodness towards us in his Son, the stabilizing effect of the assurance that all things are being worked together by God for the good of transforming us into the image and likeness of his son that we might enjoy him more deeply and reflect him more clearly to a watching world. Are we enjoying the goodness of God and the grace of God to us through his son? Is there a deep assurance in your heart That God is indeed good, and that He is, as He has promised, as we see in hidden ways in Esther, in clear ways in Joseph, and in clear ways through the letters of the New Testament, that He is good, and He is working all things, all things together for your good and His greatest glory. Is there an assurance in your heart of His goodness? friends if you're not enjoying his goodness towards you if there's no assurance of his goodness towards you in these things call out to him tell him ask him to work these things in your heart by his spirit I promise you he'll deal with you mercifully as david said in psalm 23 he will lead you into the green pastures of these certainties because he is good Friends, this morning we're going to give you a couple of moments as we respond to God's word together as friends, as a church family, for some of you with your kids here as a family to respond to the goodness of God in his word as you pray to him together to reflect on this morning, to pray, to cry out to him then we're going to respond by singing together by remembering Jesus' life death and resurrection, by receiving communion together and we're going to be sent out from here as his people. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect and pray together. Father, we thank you for the reminders that you are indeed good. Lord, there's so much more to you than we could ever get our head around. There's so much more contour and edge. There's so much more glory and beauty to you than our minds can even comprehend at times. Thank you for these moments when we're able to see you. We're able to appreciate you. We're able to enjoy you. And this morning, we ask that you would, by your spirit in our hearts this morning, to help us to enjoy you more deeply, to come to a greater delight in your goodness towards us, to see the majesty of your artistry and your wisdom, even in the way you write and ordain these stories together. They reflect something of your glory and beauty. We want to see you, the fullness of who you are, that we might enjoy you that our confidence and our assurance in you would grow, that our delight in you would deepen, and that we would know in the rest of today and tomorrow and the things we we share with others and the things we hold to ourselves, that you are indeed working all of these things out together for our good. Might we enjoy being conformed to the image and likeness of your Son. We ask these things in his name. Amen.